Hi, this is Bob, and today I have an interview with Aldo Nova. Aldo Nova is a Canadian guitarist, keyboardist, vocalist, songwriter, and producer. He gained fame with his self-titled debut album. Now all Aldo Nova has released, The Life and Times of A. Gage, a rock opera. This is sure to please all his fans of all ages. Aldo Nova never sacrifices in any of his endeavors, and this one is no different. And here is my interview with Aldo Nova. I wanted to thank you for taking time to speak with me today. Oh, no problem. I enjoy speaking. I got a big mouth. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to congratulate you on the life and times of A. Gage. Ah, thank you. How did the project come to you? project came to me, uh, I don't know, the, the backstory to this is that I was working with a bunch of artists who were writing, you know, after, after 2000, uh, my, after my Twitch record, I sort of like, I, I didn't, I wasn't happy with Twitch. Mind you, people love it, but it was more of a record uh, organized by the record company. They made, had, me, had me doing songs that... Uh, it was written by other people and that were, I was just doing covers. I had nothing to do with it. So I, I don't like doing that. I have enough creativity. Like my first album was iconic. The subject is iconic also. The twist is, is it's not an iconic, it's not an album of it per se. It doesn't have any fire to it, which is what I'll, I'll tell you about other things. Uh, it's lacking fire and I, I believe that fire should be there. So after that, I said, well, okay, I get out of the business and I don't like, I don't like the establishment at all or the status quo. I mean, I don't know anybody that will say, just walk out of the contract. So I went back to Montreal where I'm here now and uh, I waited out. In the meantime, I started writing with uh, Celine Dion doing commercials. Uh, and then I started working with, uh, uh, working and writing for again, Celine, for Clay after that, for Clay Aiken, for Bon Jovi, bon for uh, French artists, Gadou, uh, Patrick Duell, all these guys in different languages, all, all had big hits, number one hits. I mean, I wrote a number one hit uh, uh, that was, uh, I wrote a new day has come for Celine Dion, which was uh, number one in 26 countries for six months. So, uh, I wrote, so I wrote Fantasy and I wrote that. So, so that went on and went on. And then I was hired as a, uh, a writer like for publishing where I was, I was just, you know, you'd sit on a, with two three different guys and you had like three hours to write a song, whatever. I did that. I earned my living doing that. And now I started working with different artists and whatever. And, and I found that it was a thankless job because all you'd get, I don't mind the money. The money, uh, I'm not in business for money. I mean, I don't mind paying my bills, but, um, I just didn't why I went, well, this is a really thankless job. I mean, all they give you is, if you play on my records, you know, if, if you're passing by the studio and you pass gas, let's just say, the, it's written on my album. Well, you know, the job went by the studio and you pass gas on this song. Everybody gets their credit. On most people's records, you just get a thank you. Mm. And that's about it. So after years and years of doing that, that's 2008, so I've had enough, I'm, I don't need this business. So I said, well, I'll start instead of having a lot, a lot of people 
uh, it was a tough decision. It wasn't a tough decision at all. I just went, that's it, I'm done, I'm done. And so I, I went home and I said, well, I'd rather starve, and, uh, which I did. And then to put and put uh, and do what I want to do and never look, and I never looked back. <clears throat> so that in 2008, I got the idea to do the Life and Times by the Gage. That was the first title that I had. And so I really was creative for that. And I wrote uh, uh, seven songs in seven days and all made it to the album. <clears throat> Excuse me. And all made it to the album. And today I had a final album. And then I took some time off. Uh, I wasn't going to push the songs on this record. I wasn't going to sit there and you know write a song to write a song. So I waited for the inspiration period. So in 2009, I got you know, seven songs. Then in 2011, I got another three songs. 2013, I got another four songs. And then 2019 came, came along, and uh, and I got uh, a lot of the songs done. You know, meanwhile, during that time, I wrote a lot of songs. It was like, I think I wrote about 100, you know, over 100 songs. Wow. Uh, but, but they just came and pushed to the side. It wasn't good enough. You know, they were all made for the concept, but it wasn't good enough. I guess uh, they put it as a wayside. As soon as I wrote another one, well, another one got scrapped. So uh, in 2021, even made uh, in November 2021, I wrote the last song for it. So it all went like that. But it had to be from inspiration. It could, I didn't want to push it. So that's why it took so long. And uh, and then I came up with the life of Giants of Gage was always a concept. It was an autobiographical record anyway. So that's why I wanted to ask you if some parts of the story are actually uh, events that happened to you, like uh, during your career when you started out. Um, like um, I know, so it's like um, the character is. Uh, being enticed by all the excesses of rock and roll and stuff like that. Was that something that occurred with you? Uh, everything that's on the record, uh, the record, the, the, the physical side of the record, uh, being signed in 1981 in June of 1981, uh, releasing an album in, on April 1st, 1982. Uh, the, chronolo the chronological uh, aspects of that album of any games are I, I, to the T are are true are true elements. Uh, uh, they're going down. They're being enticed by the record company executives and and all that stuff. That's all true. But I made the record also based on theology and, and religion. So everything and mysticism. So every of these characters are seen uh, to what I see them as they really were. Like I see the first record company guy that signed me. I mean, they're just out there for a buck. I mean, I right. read the contracts. Recently. They trade you like a piece of meat. But I put them to sort of like in terms that make them more than what they are, not more than physical, more than just really evil. So <clears throat> the names are have to be decoded. So in the first song, Halo Daddy, it's when he gets first signed. And uh, the character's name is Andy Christos. Now, Christos is uh, Greek for Christ. Mm. So if you go Andy Christ, well, then that's it. 
So the lyrics are written, if you read the lyrics and you decode the name, it's exactly what the book of Revelation says about what he's supposed to be. It's to the letter. I mean, that's the description of who he is. So that is what a record company to me is. And then there's the good characters in there, like his friends. Then there will be a bunch of bad characters and all the names like Rati Aida. Rati is the, uh, the Hindu goddess of love and seduction and lies. So that her name is Rati. So you have to really go and research this. And that is the song of the bitch in black. And then you get like the King of Deceit, which is uh, the one with 40 piece orchestra and one voice. Mm-hmm. And that's very uh, Baroque and stuff like that. So the character's name is M.F. Stoffelis. So if you say that fast, it's Mephistopheles. And Mephistopheles is the most romantic way that you could say the devil. That's, you know, in Shakespearean times, Mephistopheles is like a romantic name. So the character King of Deceit is him, but describing himself as I'm a liar and a thief, which is all he is to me. It's like, can't do more. I mean, to me, it's like the most, if the most he can do is make is making puke chickens uh, pea soup. I mean, it's like you're worthless. I mean, the whole, um, the whole, uh, the whole aspect of of what that is is just ridiculous. I mean, they always have the bad guy, the bad guy, the the, the guy that you can't kill, like Michael Myers in Halloween. Mm-hmm. He's like, you know, a killing machine. You know, it's like he out there and nothing can kill him. He never, he's always come back. But in the first Halloween, Jamie Lee Curtis kicks his ass. So in the end, the good guy always wins, no matter what Bugs Bunny cartoons. And the good guy always wins. You know, no matter how much uh, Wally Coyote tries and bombs and all of these plans, uh, the Roadrunner goes beep beep and blows up on his face. So it's like, it's to me, it's a comic book. So uh, the good guy always wins in the end. So it's my the King of Deceit is like he describes himself as what he is. A liar and a thief. I gave him that power. That's all I him. I didn't give her any power than that. It's not any adulation to the, to him. It's not uh, nothing. It has nothing to do with uh, with uh, with me um, revering him or you know doing whatever. It's more a description of him mm. saying what he is and what he is is a liar and a thief. And uh, it's just a tempter. Uh, Rati Aida is like I said. She's uh, uh, a goddess of love, which is the one that the vision by is the one that seduces them to become to fall to all this stuff, become prey to uh, to uh, drugs and alcohol and excesses, and then uh, and then on the EP, on the actual two-hour, twenty-five-song thing, there's a lot of stuff in between that tells the story. But on the on the EP, the song that comes after is on the way to the cycle board, which uh, is a to the sonic. A description of, of the ambulance rides taken to the to the asylum. So uh, so before that song, he has a, a breakdown, and they take him to this asylum, and that's the sound of the ambulance ride. It's like it's frenetic, it's crazy. So uh, and it's all sudden, it's all like that. But, so the actual EP, why I did it like that is because you can tell it's not a regular record. Sure, uh, it's not it's not your regular rock record. It's not just. Ten song. It's just like it's like really apart from anything that's out there. It's very innovative, very different, and it's heavy. 
It's just like, you know, I didn't, it's not, it's, it's not, I mean, I retain certain elements of classic rock just because I'm not, uh, you know, people love classic rock. I love classic rock. I love, I grew up in, in the sixties and seventies and where that, that's the real classic rock. The Led Zeppelins and all mm-hmm. these great guitar players, John Winter, uh, Mahavishnu, uh, uh, all these guys that, you know, that I was playing. I mean, all these records that were like Jimi Hendrix, like Band of Gypsies. Oh, I mean, I absolutely. bought that the day it came out. You know, when, jo- when I, Johnny Winter and Live came out, I mean, it's, on, it's like I keep saying this interview, these guys are on fire. You know what I mean? That, that record is like, yeah. Johnny Mitchell on guitar, Rick Derringer on guitar, Dan Hartman, and I forget who's on drums, but each one of those guys went on to have like a great career. Dan Hartman was a huge songwriter. Rick Derringer, you know, had a huge solo career after that. So they all had, was four monsters in one band. That's super group. I mean, nowadays super groups, what are they, a bunch of guys that, I mean, you know, all the... Today they put on some makeup and they think that they're rock stars. Where back then, if you like on the back cover of Johnny Winter and Live, those are a bunch of rock stars. I and mean, these good like they look like that's them. That's right. they, that's their skin. They, that's what they look like. So that's where I grew up, an era of guys that were on fire. You know what I mean? So I know that area. So I'll say it again, like I said before. Nowadays you have a bunch of great technicians. They play a lot of notes. They do. They're there. They. Uh, Everything is 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 uh, is great. They get massive amount of fans, millions of fans, millions of views, and you know everything. But I don't see the fire that we had. I mean, I grew up, I grew up in that era where uh, I used to play in clubs four nights a week, and I played everything. I played from the Beatles to the Bee Gees to covers, the hits, uh, everything. And I grew up with you know my, my musical palette was anywhere from you know, the Crusaders, uh, Chain of Reaction, to Mahavishnu, to Billy Cobb and Spectrum. And, you know, with on Billy Cobb and Spectrum, they had, like, Jan Hammer, they had uh, mm-hmm. Lee Sklar, believe it or not. Who, you always think of Lee Sklar as the guy who plays with James Taylor. But if you listen to Billy Cobb and Spectrum, he is, he's burning it up. Billy Cobb on drums, Tommy Bowen on guitar. It's just like, well, it doesn't stop. It's like a freight train. Right. So, I don't know if you're familiar. So, when I walked into my first record, my vocabulary was insane about music. I knew how to do everything. I had read modern recording magazines. I just ate it a lot. So, what time I got into my studio, the first time I recorded, I knew basically what was there. I knew how to write a song. I knew how to do harmonies. I knew how to record. I knew how to play guitar. It's like, it's what I've been doing all my life in clubs. I also wanted to ask you, as far as this album is concerned, um, dealing with orchestration and elements of that nature and choirs, obviously it's a lot of work. Um, How hard was it in putting it all together in sync? Well, that was, I don't write, I've never studied music. I don't write a note of music. I don't, uh, if I hear something like a, a song now, I can't pick up the chords. Even if playing my own stuff, uh, I always go by the melody first, and then I pick up all around the melody. I don't. I find the chords around the melody. 
I don't sit on a court and invent a melody. So for me, when I did King of Deceit, I wrote it on piano. And I laid down just a piano track with no clicks. I, I despise click tracks. And I laid it and it's played. It breathes. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. I played that. And then I put the orchestra after that. So I got um, a guy that was one of my friends who was incredible here. So I would sing him parts. And then he would write them down. I say, okay, the this has got to play there. I want to hear that. And they'll go, that should be the, the, the violist. And okay, then I sing him another part. He goes, oh, that should be the flute. And I sing him another part. Was, there should be the, 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 the contrabass and the basses. And that should be the timpani and whatever. So I basically sang him everything. And he wrote it down. And then he went and recorded the orchestra. And it sounded exactly like I wanted this. That's, that's my orchestra. So it was conducted by him, but I wrote all the parts. Fire same thing. And I also wanted to ask you, how far do you uh, do you want to take this story? Um, will you uh, try to get production of it to uh, bring around, or where? How are you looking to bring this production? Well, at first, I'm going to start touring with this. Some of the songs I'm, some of the songs I'm going to play live, even though. I'm, most of my set consists of reloaded now because mm -hmm. people want to hear that stuff. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I didn't want to play classic rock shows, I said, but you know what? If I get the right offer, uh, I just got an offer now to play in Cancun. And I said, I'll play it for nothing. Because if people don't see me, uh, I could be a little smoking guy. I've got a smoking band. But if people don't see me for once, uh, they'll never know. So I said, oh, I'll take no money. And I would go anywhere. And the guys are all with me. They're all like, you know, it's a band, it's a brotherhood. So I'll take it there first. And then eventually, I think, because of the fact that I did do a video for King of Deceit, and I didn't make the video very theatrical. You know what I mean? I was mm -hmm. in full makeup costume. I acted. And um, so people can see the, the did it out of instinct. Like this. And, it looks like a professional uh, guy that did theater all his life. At least I hope so. Oh, <laughs> yes, it came off great. And also, I wanted to talk to you about On the Way to the Psycho Ward because uh, you haven't missed a beat on the guitar. Actually, I mean, I'm a more of a composer. Like all the other stuff on the record, I'll play. But what I want to do, but I'm, I'm more of a blues-based kind of guy. I can play fast. But I, I heard frenetic, and I heard like really, I heard really like uh, insane. I heard something that was insane because it's, it's taking them to the insane asylum, and the and the ambulance is going fast and through the streets and stuff like that. So I wanted guitar. I wanted shredding guitar player, but I, I wanted sh like guitar playing. I wish just like just a million notes. I got a friend of mine who I sang what I wanted to, and then I just cut them loose. I hired the best guys, and I just let them go. Like, if you're the, the bass to free your mind, they're just, and if they don't do it good enough, I push them. I say, hey, you're playing a movie like that. Hey, really bad playing. So I pushed these guys to the max. So I gave them an outline, uh, then Stefan's pool. And basically, if I, want, if I wanted to hear that style of playing, well, he played for me. But I composed the piece. And so everybody is playing what I told him to play. I'm just playing the keyboards in the background. 
drums are playing. So it's basically like an octopus. It's like one mind, many arms. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like people get me. And then it's always like the drummer gets me. Uh, I do incredibly uh, professional demos. So you know where I'm going. But people just bring their own, uh, bring their own, their own juice to it. So I sit down, I give them like an outline. And I just let them go. But he played the song because there was a composition there. It was it wasn't just oh E flat minor uh, okay and I just play as many notes as you want to in the shortest amount of time as possible. There is a composition there. It's got changes. It's got mm-hmm. chord changes. It's got you know there's stuff to play over. So it's it's not shredding per se. It's playing fast and it's playing accurately and doing it well. I think he does it better than anybody out there. But at that point, and I'm not, I'm not shy to say that it's not me on that song. I mean, why? I didn't. I can't play that stuff. Anyway, I have two broken fingers on my left hand. I can only press. But the rest of the record is me. I can play what I hear in my head. Mm-hmm. When I did on the way to the second word, I heard that. So I let somebody who does that do it. You know, instead of killing myself trying to do it, sure. I just let somebody who's great at it do it. I mean. I also wanted to ask you, um, you also have another project um, that's coming out as well. Is that correct? Yeah, Reloaded. Coming out. Uh, go ahead. And that's going to be uh, quite revolutionary. Um, to my understanding, there's going to be uh, three discs, and yeah. uh, one will be without vocals, and one will be without guitars. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Uh, but the packaging, again, all my stuff, my CDs, cost me more than anybody else's to produce because it's important for me to have like Eddie Gage's incredible packaging. It's got a 16 page booklet with seven pages of liner notes, all the lyrics, all the gear that I use, uh, a, a synopsis of everything. So people can read liner notes and have a good time. Uh, Reloaded is also an amazing package, but Reloaded I want to make it special. I wanted to do again something that's never been done before because nobody can afford to do it. Uh, because I own everything. I pay for everything. I don't know anybody a dime. I pay it out of pocket, even if it means that I don't have much money. I'll invest everything I can on my career for the quality to give my fans a quality or the people that listen to music uh, a good product. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't skimp on quality. So when it came to Reloaded, so let me do something that nobody does or that even would do a big record company. I said, I'll put all the versions of the songs full that are smoking versions of my, and all the hits, you know, Monkey in Your Back, Blood on the Bricks, uh, Under the Gun, Fooling Yourself, uh, Modern World, Paradise, uh, Fantasy, uh, Bone Chain, all these songs are great enough, they're all redone, but they almost sound, people say they sound better than the originals because I, I say that the core of it added stuff. So it's all the songs that everybody knows. So that's full songs, this one. This two is all the songs you know in that version, but with no lead vocals on it. So you can sing with me on your karaoke track. Plus, I put a little a couple of surprises while I sing in there. Like, uh, but it's fun. And this three is uh, all these tracks with no lead guitar, and so you can jam to them. 
you can play either what I played, or you can play what you want to play. Mm. But I'm your backing band, so I mean, this too is like a hoot. You call your friends over, you get drunk, and uh, all the lyrics are included. I have a booklet with the lyrics, and just sing along. So it's uh, and there's no record company that would do that. That's like nobody, because they wouldn't give the tracks and right. lose money. And I was like, for me, it's simple. I press. I have my own recording studio. I have my. I, I do everything on it, so it's there. I'm mixing. When I'm mixing, I mute the vocal button, the where the vocals come in. I let it run. It's about. It takes me four minutes, three minutes, and then I'll I'll listen to it, see if everything's fine. Then I'll mute the guitar track, leave the vocal in, and I'll run that. And that took me about fifteen minutes, and all the tracks are done, or at least as to, for one track. Mm-hmm. As I would go, I do the same thing. So um, it's nothing. It's no cost. I mean, it it costs me more to make an album, uh, to print it and to package that three. It's a three song EP with great package, but it's, it, it's like, as I say in the liner notes, it's me giving back something to the fans that stayed with me for all these years. And I, uh, I, I have more associations with people because of the fact that. I chose to bow out of the business uh, and literally starve for what I did. And I had a hard time paying my mortgage and almost risk, you know, risk losing my house. I have much more of a connection with the people out there that buy my music because I know what it's like, how hard it is for poor example. I know how hard it is to earn a paycheck. Oh, so uh, you know, I'm not, I'm just one, one of the guys. You know, so. Uh, it's important for me to give them quality music. And I wanted to ask you, when can we uh, look for the full 25-track um, um, package? Uh, Reload is coming out on the 19th. Uh, it's coming out on CD on the 22nd on Amazon. But on the 19th, you will be able to find Reloaded on the digital uh, platforms. And I did add the instrumentals on the uh, on the. On the um, on the digital. I mean, if you want to buy, you know, the Apple, if you want to buy a CD, or if you want to stream it on Spotify or anywhere else, there's the uh, full vocal, then there's the instrumental versions there. Um, that'll be it. The next record I'm putting out is a three-song EP that has three great songs that were all, it's called Short Stories. And they're all three episodes of my life over the years that represent something to me that people will connect to. So it's three short stories, great songs. And those that were outtakes from any gauge. I'm not releasing 10, I'm only releasing three. It's only on digital. And then after that, I'm releasing another project, which is like Nova Stream on, uh, I don't know, turbocharged steroids. It's just like insane music. I'm putting that out called Sonic Hallucinations. Again, only on digital. And then uh, it's going to come out to, uh, to the EP. I'm working my way up to it. I just want to blast people with music until they get sick of it. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of your career, you've had a great career and um, you keep evolving. And I wanted to ask you, if you could pick your proudest moment as an artist, what would it be? My proudest moment was probably fantasy back then. But then, you know, you get pigeonholed as being like a one-hit wonder, or 
a one song guy, even though I've done like my whole first record is one hit after the other. If I sang you on guitar, any one of those songs, but I know that song, I know that song, I know I can sing along to that song. The whole first record is iconic. That cover to that record is an icon. I mean, everybody knows that cover. Sure. So that, so I, I did that. So for years, I sort of believed my hype and I was down in my hole or whatever. So I was like moping down on myself. And, but as a successful songwriter, I wrote A New Day's Come, which is also another classic, uh, which is <clears throat> for Celine Dion, completely a different style. Number one in 26 countries for six months. It has become a classic because it's, it's played so many times on the radio that they've classified it as a classic song. So I wrote Fantasy, which is a classic in the rock um, that they'll play 100 years from now. And New Year's Come that they'll play 100 years from now. And I've written a, a lot of number one songs. But I've always liked, I, I believe the hype on number one, the one hit wonder, blah, blah, blah. And I still have to deal with that now, the stigma. Uh, I went to a couple of bookers and managers, and you know they say, well, you know, people people haven't seen me in 33 years. So to a booker, I'm a guy who had a hit 40 years ago. Wow. They haven't seen it, so they, they say he's probably fat, he has no hair, he only had one hit. He's like, well, he's probably going to come and slap his old stuff all over the place. They don't see it. I look like, a, like I'm really young. I'm in shape. And uh, I'm on fire. So, uh, so until I prove myself to be something that I am, and people know that, I'll always be that. So for the years leading up to, I started to believe the other people. I started to believe that that one hit wonder thing. And that was really put me down. And, was, and I always worked on Eddie Gage. I didn't give up. I mean, that was my dream. I didn't give up no matter what, no matter what cost what it cost me, uh, what, it, what it cost me, what I lost, what I, what I had to sacrifice, I did that, that only. I never looked back. And I, I, don't, I don't care about working with other people. As a matter of fact, it's, it's like a pain in the ass. You know, it's like you have to tell them what to do, do that, then they get to be stars and you get lost in the dust, you get a thank you. Mm. So I started to believe my own hype till I turned to, till I, I met my wife. Somehow we got muted. You there, my friend? What? Okay, I got you. Oh, I just got a picture of some friends of yours there. Yeah. Naked. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so she said, you know, what she did in your life. It's like, you did this, you did that, you did this, you, you wrote fantasy, and you were an iconic album. And um, and when I was watching this special the other day, they were doing a special on glam metal bands. And they were talking about the glam metal bands that came, the Warrens, the Bon Jovis, the, sure. the Poisons, and all these acts. And they were all mentioning these acts, but I wasn't there. So I don't qualify as a glam metal. I don't qualify as a center. I qualify as Alvin Oba in the middle of everybody. You know, I'm right there. I have my own style. I have everything. I'm the guy who stepped out of the helicopter sure. in a leopard suit. I lasered down a door. And then I rocked with a song, wearing a leopard suit, where all the guys, the girls love me, 
all the guys handed me, and then I hit the guitar solo, and I went, wow, this guy rocks, you know what I mean? So right. I, I'm in a niche all by myself, and that that niche that came after me, and that came after me, all those bands, that's, they're copying me. They're not, they didn't invent anything. They're copying me, that sound, with that, all the layered vocals, the keyboards, and, and the heavy rock guitars. That, I created that. So it's like, uh, you did that, you wrote that, you've done this, and now you're going to come up with Eddie Gage. Eddie Gage is me, Alden, over 22, 40 years later. And if in 40 years they didn't learn anything, well, I'd get out of the business. So I came to innovate again. Well, you certainly have done that. And also, I wanted to say that uh, this will date myself as well. I seen you in, uh, I'm from Ohio, I seen you at the uh, Richfield Coliseum in 1981 with uh, Journey and Ario Speedwagon. Right. And you yeah. put you put on a hell of a show and you won Jeez. me over. Yeah, see a lot of people say, that. how many people, how many bands can say that, that, I mean, my fans go, I saw you in 1982 and that was a great show I ever saw. That's 40 years ago. Mm. And they still remember that show. Sure. So, you know what I mean? I mean, I, first of all, I always had smoking bands. My bands was like, I give them free reign. You know, I always had a smoking guitar player. When I was growing up, you had bands like that always had two guitar players. And one was better than the other one. And they would duel. That's, that gave me the principle of one of this fantasy of one guitar solo coming out one side, one guitar solo coming out the other. Wow, it's like, that was great. And you see us dueling, and, you know, some really dueling guitar. That's what I grew up with. You know what I mean? Why should I want anything else? Why would I want a wedding band behind me to take all the glory? Sure. You know, why don't I give these guys the flash? And I also wanted to ask you, along your career, um, what's the best advice you've been given along the way? The best advice that I could probably give anybody that's trying to get in the music business, get a lawyer. It doesn't matter if you have to borrow the money from your parents, if you have to borrow money at the bank, anywhere. Hire yourself a good lawyer. Because if you don't, you're going to get screwed. Inevitably. You know, that was my mistake. I mean, I, re I read the con I have the co copies of the contract after years of not being able to read them. I got access. And it's incredible, you know, the way you get treated. Like, they were trading, treating you like a pound of flesh. So, sure. There was a... The, the company that assigned me as a, they were publishers, but they signed me when they saw that I had talent, signed me as a recording artist, even though they weren't. They sort of rented me out or sold me to CBS Records, which is Sony. Mm -hmm. And I was paying royalties to ATV. And then a big percentage to Sony ATV that kept stuff and to CBS. And then to the management and then to the other ones. But in one of the contracts, it's like, well, you know, Aldenova is probably one of the biggest stars on the planet now. Uh, he's worth this much. He's a commodity. His is, 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 uh, value is a lot. And uh, he's, you know, so much. Uh, and he's worth this much and that much. And it's just clear at the bottom, Aldenova has no knowledge of what we're talking about. So uh, get yourself a lawyer. doesn't matter what you do. doesn't matter. doesn't matter what it costs. And if somebody, and most of the time, if you get a lawyer, these guys are going to back off. Because most of them are crooked. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, uh, I talked to a lot of bands that are coming out and, you know, a lot of bands consider now going independent because of the fact that, you know, one, the record company nowadays has trouble in advertisement. You could see yourself on a bus, but is that a way to present a metal band? Probably not. Well, the thing is, these new bands don't really understand the way the business works. The business works after many years, after after being in this business for so long, uh, is that even if the country, even if the record company spends five hundred thousand dollars, I just say, I'll give you a budget to do videos. We'll do this much promotion. We'll do that. We'll do this. We'll spend the whole. The whole package, whatever. Mm -hmm. We're going to spend $500,000. The band goes, wow, amazing. This is like amazing. What they don't realize the bands is that you have a contract with a record company where the artist gets the least amount of money. Let's just say 10%. Oh, let's, just, let's just 10%. And the record company has 90%. Well, that $500,000 only comes out of your 10%. Sure. They, don't collect, they don't collect out of 100. They don't sell out of 100. 100% we're going to pay off $500,000. No, they go, we're going to keep ninety, and the $500,000, we're going to keep collecting off your 10%. Sure. Forever. So the band never sees any money. You'll never see any money unless you sell millions of records. And then how, how, how much is that happening? Right. Also, I just learned recently that from somebody who's very, very wise, and everybody rags on streaming. You know what I mean? Everybody rags on streaming. But what they don't know is that streaming is for life. For an eternity. It'll always be on that platform. Uh, CD, it, it's great to... This is for our... CD is great to own. Mm -hmm. I want to have the physical in my hand. Sure. I want to make sure that, that it's mine, that I can read the liner notes that, that you can't do on streaming. You know what I mean? I want to hold an album. I want to hold a nice package somebody made, I want to read the liner notes because I put them in. Somebody buys one of my albums, there's liner notes, there's there's everything, descriptions, just beautiful artwork. Like I said, I spend more money in artwork and more money on packaging and CDs than anybody else. Like I make less money on a CD than anybody else, but my packages are intense. So a CD you sell once. So that's great. You know what I mean? But streaming is for life. So everybody rags on streaming, sure you make less money. Matter of fact, you make nothing. You know? mm. But it gets your name out there. You know, people I guess streams, well, people might want to see you live. You know, people might want sure. to buy your album. It's like advertising. Get your name anywhere. The only way that I can do my projects that I'm doing now and release like the three song E P or release the instrumental that I'm putting out is to put it just on streaming or digital platform. I couldn't make any money on physical. So um, I think it's a good thing. Uh, each each one has their, their benefits. I mean, whatever. I mean, it's like, I love to own a physical copy, and so do all my fans. They want physical. Absolutely. That's really, everybody wants physical. As a matter of fact, vinyl, if we can get a vinyl, it's like, uh, forget about it. I just, just, I just bought myself a, an expensive turntable, and I have a complete vintage setup, nothing beats vinyl. I mean, you put that knee on, you know, there's something about missing that scratching sound. Sure. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
I wanted to ask you also, uh, when you're not uh, doing musical projects, what do you like to do in your spare time? Well, I like to write. I, I, I love what I do. It's a passion. So I'm either writing or I'm pushing around in my studio and I'm just like, you lastly if you could give a message to your fans what would that message be Well, I know that you're a hard worker. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember um, somewhere, I'm not sure where it was, but um, before I seen you play, I heard an interview, I believe <coughs> with you, where you talked about uh, getting a studio for the first time and you told this guy, like, I know every aspect, just let me in. And you... Um, uh, picked up all the tools of the trade on your own. Is that is that correct? If I remember well, right. I, I you know I, when I walked into the studio, I had an intense amount of musical vocabulary. I mean, uh, I uh, I grew up playing to Hendrix. Uh, mm. uh, that's the beauty of being sixty five years old is that when Hendrix came out, that would be the record I that would buy. You know, that was the record that came out that week. It's not something I'm going back to now at 65 years old. I, you know, like somebody's going back and just discovering Hendrix. That was what came out. I was I listened to all that. I had all that musical bass. 
and then I would play clubs four nights a week for 45 minutes, for 45 minutes sets a night for four days a week. And when I was doing my first album, I had three jobs, I had two jobs. I get out from 10 to 8 a.m. at 10 from 10 in the morning to 8 a.m. p.m. at night. I would work in a music store. Then they'd pick me up at eight, and I'd go play clubs till 2:30 in the morning. And then after that, I had access to the studio, so the guy would drive me there at 3:30, and I'd work all night till till about 7:30 in the morning. Then I'd grab a couple hours sleep, and I'd go back to work. So, wow. So I mean, I had I played when I played the clubs, I played everything. I played because we had to play all the hits, so I'd be playing heavy music. I'd be playing Led Zeppelin. I'd be playing the Bee Gees. I'd be playing disco music. I'd be playing the Beatles. I'd be playing everything. So I, when I walked into this, yeah, I mean, I, I had chops. When you have a guitar in your hands, you know, almost twenty-four hours a day, you learn how to play. Sure. And then I moved on to, and I, I started listening to. Uh, Bands like uh, Mahavishnu, and you know, it's like or Billy Cobham, and you know, all this jazz fusion mm-hmm. stuff, or the Crusaders, so or Joe Pass, all these things. So all these, there was. I listened to Johnny, like I told you, Johnny went around that. And that was like, I guess I'll say it again. These guys are on fire, and yeah. all these guys, you know what I mean? And now I say, you know, so when I walked into the studio, not only was I reading Modern Recording magazine every month. The vocabulary I had was insane. You know, so I walked into the studio. I pretty much knew what to do. And if I didn't know how to do it, I invented it. Mm-hmm. Well, I wanted to thank you for taking time to speak with me. It's been an absolute pleasure. I could talk to you all day. Ah, no problem. I've got all day. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. It was great. It was really, really good. Thank you. And please feel free to update me at any time on any new news, especially any, any uh, road dates. We'd love to see you here in Ohio. Okay, well, I'm starting my first, as far as I know, my first uh, date in uh, Cancun, Flat Hollywood, between the 25th of October and 30th of October, which uh, I'm doing, uh, uh, it's called the uh, 80s in the Sand, so it's all the best. Like the 80s, but completely the 80s, like, MTV hosts and oh, okay. bands ranging from me to Loverboy to Wang Chung to uh, all the ones that were there on MTV those days that, that made it big. So it's, it's just a party on the beach. So it's going to be fun. So that would be a great place to start. At least, you know, like I said, you've got to start somewhere. Absolutely. Seeing you have the most amazing band in the world doesn't get too far. So if, if, they, if it costs me to go over there, I'm going to go. You know what I mean? I want people filming on YouTube and start showing them what I'm all about. Well, I want to thank you again, and you have a great rest of your day, my friend. Thank you very much. Take care. Cheers. I'd like to thank you for taking time for listening to the podcast today. You can sponsor the podcast. Just click that button, and you can be a member of the family. And remember, come see me for a fix.